If you want to open your Bibles to Psalm 23, we'll pick up where he left off. I'm going to put some glasses on here. It's getting worse and worse. It's getting harder and harder to read without them. So in Psalm 27, it says this is a Psalm of David. Many of the Psalms were written by David, among other authors. Again, this one is, is titled as a Psalm of David. And starting there in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come, came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent, He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord." And we could just stop right there. <laughs> As David writes this psalm, we don't have a lot of detail about it, about the time and the place of his writing. So we don't know that historical information, but David had many seasons of his life like what he is describing here. Seasons of difficulty, even before he was the king and then after he was the king. At times, as he mentions here in Psalm 27, being surrounded by his enemies. 
And, and in this psalm, David is worshiping God. Think again that the psalms, many of them were meant to be sung. Uh, they were meant to be sung by the choir and the people being led by the choir. It's one that we could easily sing, I think, today, and there's elements of it that we do sing. It's designed to reassure us, to build confidence and peace in all the circumstances that we find ourselves, and we're going to look into this a bit. And in it, we're also able to see, and I hope we can see that more clearly tonight, the connection between both the Old and the New Testament, as David would write of his times and his life, but also be able to look forward to the fulfillment of all of these things through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. So beginning there again at verse 1, it says, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread?' Now, this is the, that clear encouragement from David. The Lord is, He is, the Lord Yahweh, the creator of the universe and all that it contains. He's calling upon that God, the only God, the one true God. He's drawing also drawing our attention back to the beginning of time and the, and the history that is provided in the book of Genesis. If you're to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says there, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. David says that he is my light. He's my illumination. God created light from nothing. By the very power of His voice, His Word, He spun the world into existence. And then looking way forward, we also understand that, that God in His infinite wisdom would declare that Jesus is the light. In John chapter 1, verses 14, there was a true light which coming into the world, I think this is actually John 1, 9, not 14. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus came to be that visible representation of God to separate the light and the darkness. See, God is both the source of physical illumination, light, but also spiritual illumination, that is, the truth of God. He separates the light from the darkness, and Jesus separates the spiritual darkness and, is, and overcomes it through the truth, the spiritual light. And this was affirmed later on, again, through the Isaiah the prophet. In uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, he said, it is a too small thing, or it's a very small thing, that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. As he looks down through the lens of the future, he's saying, I, I was God from the very beginning. If you were looking at the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
From the very beginning, it was his desire to separate light and darkness and to fix the problem we created in the very beginning there in the garden. And it is through God's plan of redemption mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and is fully realized in the gospel that we understand, fully understand, God's salvation. And the word salvation that David uses here in Psalm 27 also refers to deliverance, to be freed. We are delivered, we are set free from the curse of sin which was pronounced there in the garden, and we're delivered by the seed of the woman that he refers to there in Genesis chapter 3, who is Jesus, the Messiah, God who came in the flesh. He lived, He suffered, He died, and was resurrected that we could be delivered. And David would say this centuries before, He is my light and my salvation. Now, the second part of verse 1 serves as kind of a rhetorical reminder. Because God is our light and salvation, we have nothing to fear. He asks the question, whom do I fear? Whom do I dread? If these two or since these two things are true, what would cause me fear or dread? That idea that my life is in danger, there is no hope. And the rhetorical answer is nothing. There is nothing to fear. Though David would not see the Messiah, you and I know that Christ is our defense or means of safety and protection. That He is our guard for our souls. 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2 my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation or the substitute for our sin. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world, for those who will accept Him. He is our defense. And since He is our defense, what do we have to fear. Whenever Satan accuses us, whether in our minds or to God, Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney, as it were. And he declares our, our debt of sin to be satisfied, to be justified, to be paid for. And he removes the guilt and the shame that is associated with, you, with it. And this ought to be the best place we could find ourselves, to be free of fear, the dread for our life, to be free of guilt and shame, knowing the truth that Jesus is our light and our salvation. However, for you and me, the challenge is not only to believe this, to mentally assent to it, but also to allow it to affect our daily living. Does it affect our daily living? Do we, do we believe this or do we trust in something else? David Guzik in his commentary, Enduring Word, he says, if we rarely know what it is to have the strength 
of be, to have God be the strength of our life, perhaps it is because we have trusted in so many other things for strength. We find it easy to trust in our wisdom, our experience, our friends, and our resources. David knew a strength greater than all of these. And I would have to say that is true in my life in various points, that I have trusted way more in my own wisdom or resources or abilities and gifts to get myself out of a pickle or a mess or to fix a situation that I desperately want to see different. But God has said that He is to be our defense, our strength. If we believe the Lord is our light and salvation, our defense, then we should have no fear or dread. Our bold peace, and I say bold peace, our bold peace should be on display for everyone to see, which makes us ask the question, hopefully, if people aren't seeing us peaceful in the midst of chaos, why? What have we trusted in besides God Himself? Because the reality is, there is much to distract us from these truths, aren't there? There is opposition at every turn, and David describes this in verse 2. He says, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, my enemies, they stumbled and fell. An army encamps against me. My heart will not fear, even if war arises against me. In spite of this, I am confident." You see, this is nothing new to us as believers, or even for the non-believer. We have real enemies, physical ones, but also spiritual ones. We, we understand that there is a spiritual realm in which there is spiritual battles taking place for the hearts and minds, just as it's described in Scripture. Both seeking to devour us, to remove our hope in Christ… to help, to, to desire, to move us towards trusting in our physical resources rather than the greatest resource that we possess, which is spiritual. Scripture says we do not wage against flesh and blood, right, but against powers and principalities. However, for the disciple of Jesus, those enemies, whether they be one or many, physical or spiritual, they are destined for failure destined for failure for those who trust in Him. Think back to Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies. He says, you've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's not just that we lack fear, that we lack this dread and doubt and anxiety, but that we know for certain that we have a God that desires to abundantly, more than we can imagine, bless us even in the presence of our enemies, that His provision is there for us. Because the Lord is light, salvation and defense our enemies will be put to shame. We can be fearless. 
I'd like to think that I'm fearless most of the time, but that's just not true. Uh, my wife and I, we talk about, if you, want to ask, if you want to know the truth about me, ask my wife. I, I am uh, a glass half-empty guy, way too much. I tend to look at all the problems and come up with a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, write my lists, make a plan. Um, for those who've been on a, on a mission trip to Africa or some other place with me, you know that I'm a list person. But most of that is motivated by fear, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of compromise, right? Fear of being seen as a fool or incompetent, but it's fear nonetheless. But despite those things, if we are seeing God for who He is, for who He is in His character and nature and who He is in our relationship with Him, we can be free and we can have this confidence. In spite of this, David says, I am confident. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since God is for us, who in the world, in heaven and earth, could possibly stand a chance against Him? What fear, what anxiety, what depression, what, whatever aspect of life that we are faced with, what could stand against that God? Look now at verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold His beauty, the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in His temple. David asked for one thing, but every time I've read this, he's, it seems like he's asking for three things. But track with me as we as Ryan really opened up this idea of Hebrew poetry. It's repetition, uh, a contrasting comparison of ideas and thoughts. And so he's saying, I'm asking for one thing. What is that one thing as he describes these three things? He says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, behold the Lord's beauty, and meditate in the Lord's temple. All three of those have the commonality of being near God. One thing I desire, to be near God. To know that I am in His presence. We sang about that in the song. To be in His presence. To be intimately near to the Lord in all aspects of His life. That's what David's saying. Can we say that? Can we say, I want to be near God in all aspects of my life? Or as it says in the New Testament, whatever I do, I do as unto the Lord heartily, right? As unto the Lord. In physical presence, emotional satisfaction, and spiritual dedication or service. This is what David desires. This is what he's telling you and I tonight. 
This is what we ought to desire. <coughs> to be near the Lord regardless of circumstance. He said, because there is beauty, there is satisfaction, there is safety in the light and in the presence and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Do we long to be near God in our daily lives? Again, I, I think we can all agree that there are times we wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I, I'm in a real pickle. There's a mess ahead of me, and I'm about to get out of bed. I need you to be near, I need to be near you. I need to know your presence that I could make it through this day. And to reflect you, because it's not to reflect ourselves to say, wow, I did such a great job, but to reflect God's presence and glory in our lives. Do we believe that being close to Him is enough? Is God enough? And this is a hard question to ask when we begin to look, uh, for instance, in our garages our storage units, our backyards, maybe our front yards. Is God enough? Maybe we, as we look at our timesheet that we fill out, and how many hours we spend at work, is God enough? If God is enough, then we will, we will be able to see His hand upon our lives and joyfully be able to declare the truth of it. There, now in verse 5, it says, For on the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. You remember, He's repeating this idea, the tent, the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord. He will hide me in the secret place of His tent. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing to the Lord. You see, when trouble comes, and that's important, when it comes, not if it comes, when it comes. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, persecution, trials, right? James reminds us, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, my fellow believers, when you encounter various trials, right? I'm not, I'm, I don't think any of us are waking up in the morning and say, I can't wait for more hardship. It's going to make my relationship with God so much deeper. It's going to be amazing, right? Yet, when it comes, if we are focused upon Him, when God is enough, then we get to see the promises of God revealed in our lives. As Colossians 3, 3 says, our lives are hidden in Christ. This is what David is describing, that the safest place my life could be held is in God through Christ. All my possessions, all the things that I say I own but are really on loan to me by God, right? As someone once said there, you don't see a hearse, followed by a U-Haul truck. We, we are not taking it with us. 
but our life is hidden in Christ. Looking back again, that He's our defense earlier in this chapter. You see, in ancient Jewish culture, and even to some extent in the Jewish law today, if a person is a guest in your home, you have the responsibility to shield them from harm as if they were their, your own family. It's the very foundation, actually, of our Good Samaritan laws that we have in existence here in the United States. To be in God's presence, to be a member of His household, is superior to anything that humanity has to offer. No one can remove a child of His house. No one can take us, as the Scripture says. No one can snatch us from His hand. And the idea is really magnified in the second part of verse 5. He says, He will lift me up on a rock. He's saying, my, my footing in all these things, in all circumstances, my footing is secure. My foundation is resting upon this truth. And because my assurance in Him is solid, He causes me to lift up my head, to provoke joy and worship in my heart and mouth. You see, amid a host of enemies and troubles, what could be more joy-inspiring than to know we have a protector who makes a place of safety for us every day? If we could remember just for a moment as we wake up, think, I have a secure stronghold. I have a safe room that no one can touch me. Because that is the truth. The Word says that He is our strong tower that we ought to run to. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. This was the hope of David. This is the hope he's trying to communicate to you and I. During my nearly 29 years, I think in August it'll be 29 years here at CCSE, I've been really blessed to be with individuals and their families as they approach their day of death. Now, for those who are followers of Christ, this can often be a time mixed with joy and also sorrow. Joy knowing that our suffering, our time of heartache in this world is over, right? Also, the sorrow of realizing, hey, I'm not going to have that person present in my life. In some of those situations, we sang worship songs. We gathered together in a hospital room or in a home, and we sang worship songs together. We laughed as we told stories. Now, now some might say, wow, that seems awful disrespectful to the person that's lying there in the moment of death. But how could we not be joyful if we believe that this is true? that He is our defense, our strong tower, our light, our salvation. 
because He told us that He was preparing a place for us, that where He is, there we get to go. (laughs) And for us to depart from this life is to step into His presence. What greater joy could we wish upon a person to be free of the struggles and the heartaches of this life and to be in the very presence of God with the greatest joy you could possibly experience? In this life, we will have hardships, disappointments, discouragements, and griefs of all sort. What we need in this life is an anchor, a cornerstone. This is something that someone shared with me at the very beginning of my search to understand and to know God. You need an anchor in this world, a moral and spiritual anchor. Now, the Bible would also describe this as the cornerstone. The stone upon which every other stone is leveled against and connected to. It determines the course of all the other foundation stones and aligns the whole building to create real structural integrity, the cornerstone. And through this psalm, David directs us to the Lord. He uses the Lord repeatedly, the cornerstone, the anchor for all of his life. Jesus is that cornerstone. As it says in the New Testament, the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected, the people of his day and his time when he appeared, as Pastor Doug is sharing with us in Luke on Sunday mornings, the very people he came to be a cornerstone for, they rejected him. But he is that cornerstone. He can be that cornerstone for you and I. If we are willing to surrender our lives to him, because through Him we have been given the light or the truth in order to understand it. If we accept this truth, the Lord reveals to us. We can profess faith in God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That anchor then, that the cornerstone anchors us, that, that spot in our life now, It holds us firm despite the difficulties that we may be experiencing, any adversary, any war, either physical or spiritual, that would come against us. That becomes our anchor point, the point that we can return to over and over and over again. I am certain of this one thing. More than holding us firm in times of hardship, we can also possess the ability to be joyful in any circumstance. He says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Though He's in the presence of enemies and violence and all this, He says, I will still sing praises to God. I will worship Him. And not by our own strength, not by His own strength, but because He is daily, as He's already demonstrated, desiring to connect with God in fellowship in service, in prayer, in learning of Him. Having just told us that this is his one desire is to be near the Lord, David now expresses that at times he doesn't feel or sense the presence of God 
in his circumstance. Have you ever been there? In verse 7, he says, Hear, Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me, he's like, I, I need you to hear me. Recently, our daughter Brielle had oral surgery. Um, she's getting some orthodontia work done, and they determined she didn't have enough room for all of her teeth. So they had to take, she's 10 years old, and they had to take out 10 teeth. And as we left the oral surgeon's office, and she is in this, this anesthesia daze, she's got these gauze things in her mouth. Sorry, Brielle, I know you're sitting back there. She's got these gauze things sticking out of her mouth, and she's kind of like, a little dopey, and we had to help her in the car and get her home and pick her up and carry her into the house. As a mom, as a dad, we were more than willing to listen for her requests, more than willing to fulfill her requests. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he says, verse 11, so if you, despite being evil or broken people, people that don't always have pure motives, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So David says, Lord, hear me when I cry, and be gracious to me and answer me. Because it's God's, it's God's great pleasure to answer to respond to us, to those who know him and who seek him. David knows he can seek the Lord's help at any time, and he is reassured that he'll be heard and that God's response will be gracious. Even when that present situation leaves him feeling alone. The problem I have, and I suspect some of you also have, is that we want the response in our way and in our timing. When, when God doesn't respond quickly, like Burger King or McDonald's, or whatever your favorite fast food place is, Taco Bell, we begin to wonder, are you there? Did you hear me? Maybe you're ticked off at me. In James chapter 4, he addresses some of this as it relates to not even asking, but also in the sense that when we do ask, he says, we often ask because we do not have God's desire for our lives as the first and foremost purpose. It, it says there in James chapter 4 that, that we desire to have things that we might spend them on our own selfish desires rather than to submit to God's purposes for our life. We want what we want when we want it. Which brings us back to verse 8. David said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, I shall seek your face, Lord. Lord, I shall seek your face, the master, the author of all creation, the author of my salvation. I will seek your face. 
from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, God desires us to seek and to know Him. But He is also seeking us, isn't He? And we see this all throughout Scriptures with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see that with Noah, God reaching out to humanity through Noah. With Abraham, and even with Lot in Sodom. And the stories go on and on and on of God reaching out and telling people, seek me, you will find me. David wants us to understand that the most satisfying, rewarding, and comforting position in life, again, is to be near God. In prayer, in reading, meditating on His Word, to know Him and to know more of Him each day. It is in the, that persistence, that persistent seeking, we are reminded that God will answer. Not a maybe, but that He will answer in His time and in His way. So David continues now, and he says in verse 9, Do not hide your face from me. As I mentioned earlier, he's talking, he's, he's expressing these times when he doesn't feel the nearness and closeness of God. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. He's saying, don't do this, because I know you've been there. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. In here, he presents three negative requests don't hide your face, don't turn away, and don't abandon or forsake me. As I mentioned in the beginning, David experienced many really, truly trying times of life, some of which were of his own making. And as a result, there were times when he felt as if God was not visible in his circumstances, that God was not listening or hearing or watching over him. When circumstances become so difficult that we begin to think, we begin to think the Lord is no longer near or that He cares, we need to return to that which we know for certain. In Joshua chapter 4, the nation Israel has been wandering in the desert, the wilderness, as it says, for 40 years. Much of it as a result of their rejection of God's wisdom and direction, so much so that an entire generation ceased to exist there during that 40-year period. And now the people are like, we're done, we're ready. That didn't work out for us so well. I'm, I'm all for God's plan now. And now Moses is gone, and Joshua begins to lead the people, the nation Israel, into the land that was promised to them way back through Abraham. And they approach the Jordan River, and God has the priests with the ark step into the river, as in they step into the river, the water stops flowing. And he tells them, you take 12 men, one, one from each of the tribe of, tribes of Israel, and you have each of those men take a stone. Now, I think guys were just like guys today 
in that the first guy walked in there and got a pretty good-sized stone. And the next guy's like, not outdoing me. And they just, they just grabbed the biggest stones they could, and they were instructed to carry them to the other side to heap them up. Why? Why would God want them to create a pile of stones? Well, He tells them, in successive generations, when children will look upon this pile of stones, why? Why are these stones piled here? They will remember the hand of God, His protection, His provision, and His rescue. See, because hard times were coming, He was taking them into a land in which he, they, they needed to serve God, but also defeat the enemy. Not in their own strength, that wasn't God's plan, but in His strength, in His power. And He wanted them to remember in all those difficult circumstances who it was that got them there in the first place. We need memorial stones in our lives. We need those things in our lives that we can look back. Um, it's one of the reasons why uh, people have encouraged me over the years, I've encouraged others, others to have a journal or, or, or a photo log, objects that we hold on to and we look at and say, this, in this moment in time, I know for certain that God was doing something great in my life, in my, in my community so that when those more difficult times come, I can be reminded, He is all these things that He says He is. He is my strength, my defense. What memorial stones do you have in your life? And I would, I would encourage you, write them down. Share them with friends and family. Share them with coworkers. Hold on to them so that when times come, we can be reminded He is still working. He still has our best interest and His greatest purpose at heart. The truth is, even as David expresses here, <coughs> that people will disappoint us, won't they? I, I've often told people when I meet them for the first time, and we're just talking about life and ministry, and they're like, wow, you're a pastor. And I'm like, listen, be careful. If you know me long enough, I'm likely going to disappoint you. I'm just a human being. We are just human beings. Parents, friends, husbands, wives, children, we are imperfect human beings destined to disappoint one another. However, if we are seeking God and drawing near to Him, and remembering his past faithfulness, we should be able to recall his promises. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. To remember that we are his children, if indeed we put our faith and trust in him. And because we are His children, since we are His children, it says <coughs> He will take us up there at the end of verse 10. 
You see, because God cannot deny His role as a good and loving Father in our lives. Amen? He cannot deny His character and nature. As David considers the Lord's truth, His salvation, His protection, His provision throughout his life, he directs us to continue learning from and following the God who loves us. There in verse 12, or 11 and 12, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not turn me over to the desires of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen against me, and the violent witness. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, they ought to be our never-ending prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts, because there are a lot of them, <laughs> and see if there's any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Because like David, I am often tempted to be anxious and fearful, fearful of the things I can't control, fearful of the things that I want to control. Yet the faithfulness of God can return us, as David says, to the anchor in Him. Verse 13, certainly, I certainly believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. No matter what is happening, no matter who stands against me, no matter what falls apart in my life or in my physical body, I certainly believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. As he learns, as David learned, as we learn, as we follow the path God desires for us, as we remember the many times we were sustained or protected they once again anchor us, give us that confidence that we will see the goodness of God. We will see the goodness of God. Where? Both here and on earth, as he says in the land of the living. He says in this life and also in the eternal life, which is yet to come. Oh, for certain, right? We know this. We see it around us all, every day. In fact, the news won't let us escape it. People are dying everywhere. Death and dying are a natural function. Life is a terminal illness. However, when Christ returns, when He establishes a new heaven and a new earth, death and dying are put away. And this place, that is the place for the living, not the dead. As we continue to learn from the Lord, as we allow Him to lead us, as we trust in His leading, we can know for certain the goodness of Him in all circumstances right up into eternity. That we have assurance of our place. As we mentioned earlier, nothing can separate us from Him. And so David says, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your hearts take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And this is one of the most difficult things I think most of us wrestle with. My son Gabe 
when he was in high school, coming out of high school, Lord, or Dad, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? I, I've heard that my whole entire Christian life. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Because sometimes we get this idea that it is a passive thing, that we just sit and we wait and we do nothing. David Guzik said this, we should wait on the Lord as a beggar waits for the handouts at the rich man's door, as a student waits to be taught, as a servant waits on his master, as a traveler waits for the directions of the guide, as a child waits upon his parent. John Trapp, another Bible commentator, said, Many of his promises bear long, a long date, but they are sure and infallible. Wait, therefore. We must remember this. Our waiting is not passive. It is not lazy. It is not purposeless or aimless. Our waiting on the Lord is in prayer, as David has outlined for us. It's in trusting. It's in seeking. It's in worshiping, it's in service, and the learning and knowing more of Him every day. That is waiting in the Lord. Because waiting in this manner provides a fearless trust in Jesus. The one who created all things, rescued us from certain death, sustains us in all circumstances. He is always our source of joy and guides us all of our days until we arrive home, the home that He says He is preparing for you and I. Amen? Wait upon the Lord. Amen? God, we come to You once again and we say, we need to know you more deeply than we know you today. Tomorrow we have the potential to face all kinds of uncertainties and fears and difficulties, opposition perhaps. And if it is not for you, we would certainly lose heart. We would certainly, as your word says, become faint. Lord, anchor us once again in the truth of your word. Help us to remember what you said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest for your soul. For my burden is easy. My burden is light. God, help us run to you to seek you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. And for your glory we ask you, Father. Amen.